0: As the kids and their leaders are making their way out, uh, perhaps you could turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. You'll find it on page 1010, and we're going to read from verses 1 to 23. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed, With unclean hands. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commandments of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of settling aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corbin, That is a gift devoted to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean, for from within Out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. This is the word of God. Uh,
1: Thanks, Dan. Uh, Folks, please do have open that passage. Uh, Mark chapter 7, page 1010. Uh, Great to see you. Uh, I had a look around and there are a few faces here this morning I I don't recognize, so it's uh, lovely to meet you uh, for the first time today. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are spying on Jesus. Some people just love to do that, by the way. Uh, religious people like to be on the lookout for people who aren't getting it quite right or are slipping up so they can jump in and sort it out. This isn't the first time for these Pharisees and religious leaders. Chapter 2, if you remember, they spotted Jesus when he was out walking in the, the cornfield, spotted him and his disciples on a Sunday taking a few grains of corn We're told of another occasion when they were watching him on a Sunday, a Sabbath, to see if he would heal and break Sabbath. So they're always watching him, always spying on him. Well, what's the issue here today? They're investigating, verse 2, some of Jesus' disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, unwashed. So is this like the school dinner lady in a primary school? Is this personal hygiene? stuff. It, it might have an element of that, but I don't think mostly that that's what's going on here. The problem here isn't dirty hands in a physical sense. Uh, there's something more. Mark tells us, verse 3, the Pharisees and the Jews, they don't eat unless they've given their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash It feels like there's something more going on here. This is ceremonial, uh, not just about hygiene. This is about what makes a person clean or unclean. Clean or unclean, somehow before God... By the way, that idea of clean and unclean, um, it's probably language that we're not that familiar with when we think about coming to worship, but it's a, a big deal in the Jewish world. So in one of their favorite Psalms, in Psalm 24, they'd sing these words, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand on his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who doesn't lift his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Do you see how the idea of clean hands functions in this psalm? It's right there beside purity of heart, devotion to God, integrity before God. So whenever we're talking about clean hands in Mark 7, it feels like there's something more going on than personal hygiene. This is about, as I've said, about what makes a person clean or unclean before God. This, as the psalmist says, is about who's allowed to come and to be with God, to stand in His holy place, to ascend the hill. The implication is that clean people get to come and unclean people don't. And if that's what we're talking about this morning, this is no small thing. That's what this whole passage is going to be about. Clean and unclean. I don't know if you noticed that seven times in that short passage, the word unclean. Right from verse two at the start to verse twenty-three at the end. That's why we're calling this morning's sermon the stain. The Pharisees, by the way, they, they really cared about this stuff. They they really wanted to be clean they wanted the kind of people who knew that they could come and be before a holy God. So what they did is they made extra rules to make sure that they went the extra mile, to make sure that they were extra qualified to come to be accepted by God. Mark alludes to that, verse 4, talks about There was much more that they did than just washing hands. There was the cups, the pitchers, the kettles. There's a whole world in behind that of rules that the Pharisees had made to to qualify them for for coming to God. So here we have a problem. The Pharisees have made these extra rules for acceptance by God, and they see that Jesus' disciples aren't keeping the rules. So You'll probably understand this dynamic. If you're a person who's into rules, there's nothing worse than people not keeping the rules. Isn't that right? People who aren't into rules don't mind so much, but people who are into rules get unhappy when the rules aren't kept. So that's the problem. They come to Jesus, verse 5. Why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Jesus, if only your disciples were like us. If only they'd washed their hands. So there's the problem in a nutshell. It's dirty hands, isn't it? It's still the same today. Uh, There are lots of us who are sure that we're right with God because we've washed our hands. We've done something to get our act together. We're polite after all. We don't use bad language, at least not much, or outside the house where anybody else would hear it. We look good. Our hair's good. Our teeth are good. Our smile looks well. We come to church. Nice clothes, nice cars, nice houses. With that amount of niceness on the surface, surely there couldn't be anything wrong. And all the while we look at other people with their obvious sins, their dirty habits, their language, their gambling, their sexual license, their sexual confusion. Jesus, if only they were a bit more like us. If only they could get their act together and wash their hands. So there's a problem, not not just for the Pharisees, but maybe for us too. It's interesting what happens when the Pharisees bring this problem to Jesus. When they bring their, why don't your disciples wash their hands? He, he doesn't answer their question. He doesn't talk to them about the state of his disciples' hands. He talks to them immediately about the state of their hearts. Verses 6 to 13. He calls them hypocrites. He says they talk a good game about wanting to be close to God. But then he says that their hearts couldn't be further from God. He says something about what they've been up to. They've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. We'll we'll try to understand this for a second, what's going on here. Probably the best way to get it is to, to look at the example Jesus gives. Verse 10 is really an example of this pattern that they have of setting aside what really matters to God and, and raising up other things instead. So he reminds them, first of all, about commands that God had given them through Moses. Honor your father and your mother. You might recognize that. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Look after your mom and dad. And then another commandment, anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. So there's this, there's this thing where God wanted us always to care, to respect for and care for our parents. And then Jesus goes to point out a loophole that these guys have created in God's law. He says, but you say that if a man says to his father and mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corban. That is a gift devoted to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother. The end effect, says Jesus, is that you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. What Jesus is saying here is quite radical. He's a church leader, or he's a religious leader, and he says, I don't want your money. When was the last time you heard a church leader say that? Huh? Been a while. I don't want your money. God doesn't want your money. God wants you to keep his law. God wants you to look after your parents. Don't raid their pension fund so that you can give money to the free will offering. Why might we do that, by the way? Why, why might we choose those kind of actions? Well, maybe because if you're seen to be a big giver or a big contributor in a church, You get a bit of kudos for that. You might feel righteous for doing it, Jesus says, but it's plain wrong. These rules that you've made up, they might impress other people, but they don't impress God. So Jesus is talking here about the things that we do to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. Have you ever noticed that? how much more we care about what other people think of us than who we really are. Think about that for a second. What other people think about us than who we really are. That's what Jesus is talking about He's talking here about Corbin. He's talking about ostentatious hand washing. He says, verse 13, actually, you do loads of things that are like this. So, what we have here is Jesus, God among us, telling these religious leaders, Your religion stinks, it breeds hypocrisy. You care so much about things that I simply don't care about, like hand-washing. You're making mountains out of molehills when you neglect the things that I care about. You make molehills, too, out of mountains. You neglect the things that I care about, like looking after your aged parents. Your hearts are far from me. Wow. Wow. Folks, I'm just not sure that the culture that Jesus is confronting in this part of his earthly ministry is one that wouldn't still be alive and well among us today. We still do this, don't we? Mountains out of molehills. We take things that don't matter to God and make them important. In, in my generation, it used to be things like wearing hats and going to meetings and not going to the cinema. That seemed to be the, the way that uh, Christian people got on. I heard somebody describe the modern church culture as skinny jeans and smoke machines. We'll, we'll always have our things, just things that we make important, and they don't matter to God And all the while, God's longing for us to live the life that does matter to him. A life of sacrificial service to to the poor and the oppressed. We thought about this last week in our Home for Good service. I don't know if you're joining the dots. God wants us to look after vulnerable children. That's what he wants us to do. That's what he told us in his word. And it's not just vulnerable children, it's, it's vulnerable adults, it's the lonely elderly, it's, it's refugees and migrants, anyone who needs his welcome and his love. Folks, don't, let, don't let's make molehills out of these mountains, these wonderful invitations to live a godly life that sit before us don't let's be creating loopholes to get ourselves off the hook and explain all that away let's enter into it and live it God wants us to to live a beautiful life before a watching world but it's not the beauty on the surface that comes from washing our hands it's the beauty that comes from living with those kind of hearts Folks, back to our passage. Jesus has been addressing a, a particular problem with a particular group right through verses sixteen or 6 to 13. He's, it's these Pharisees settling for clean hands when God's looking for clean hearts. But the remaining verses, 14 to 23, he calls the crowd to him, anyone. He widens the conversation and he says, listen to me, everyone. So we just want to check in with you that you're listening. All right? Everyone. What does he say? Verse 15. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Uh, Don't know where you place Jesus on the sort of gross-out humor spectrum, but I think there's a wee bit of it here. He's getting a wee bit biological and a bit graphic. Probably the people who understand this best are the parents whose kids have swallowed a a marble or a coin or a small toy. There's that next couple of days where you watch for the poos, isn't there? You know, you watch to see if what went in has come out. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Doesn't matter what you put into your mouth. It all goes the one way. It comes out. That's not what you should be worried about. Clean hands isn't what this is all about. None of this is going to disqualify you from coming to God. Jesus says, in a sense what he's saying is, everything we've talked about so far doesn't matter. It's no big deal whether you wash your hands or not. That's not the problem. But he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't doesn't follow that there is no problem. He shows us what our problem is, and it's much more serious than dirty hands. It's our dirty hearts. Verse 20, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly, all these evils come from the inside and make a man unclean. So now we're talking. Here's here's the real problem. My filthy, dirty heart. That's the part of me that's beneath the surface. The part of me that can't be cleaned with soap and water. The part of me that I can't clean at all. Jesus lists 13 sins that are in my heart. He's been very kind. He's left a whole lot off. You know, I look at a list like that, and you know the way I'm wired? I'm wired to look at that list and look for the ones that that I can get myself off the hook. I don't know if you're wired like that too. So I say to myself, I'm not a murderer. I haven't committed adultery. And then I remember Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, if you've ever been angry with anyone, you're a murderer. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So yes, 13, tick, 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 and all the other things that you didn't put there, Jesus. Tick, 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 tick. tick. I get it, Jesus, okay. The truth is, no matter how good I manage to look on the surface, no matter how often I wash my hands, no matter how hard I try to have my house in order, this is the state of my heart. Folks, when I look at Jesus' list, uh, the things that he didn't even put on there, I I just remember that I'm sitting on a mountain of junk. That my heart, my interior life is like landfill. Recently a friend of mine uh, was talking to him about this passage, told him I was going to be preaching it and we were talking about it and he helped me see something that I hadn't really seen before clearer than ever. He helped me see the relationship between my my inside, my heart, and my outside actions. He said this. He said, Christoph, I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. Do you see it? I'm not a sinner because of my sinful actions. They don't make me a sinner. That's, that's not how it works. They're just a symptom. I'm a sinner because of my sinful nature. Because of who I am. The problems in my life aren't a few isolated moments where I just don't manage to behave myself as well as I'd like. The problems are infected inside. I'm in deep trouble. Uh, Those of you who know our family know that we're parenting three teenagers at the moment. Um, That's proving to be good fun. One of the best parts of it is watching them insult each other in new ways every day around the dinner table. A few years ago, after a season of watching the, the old movie, do you know the old uh, Jamaican bobsled team movie, Cool Runnings? It's full of great one-liners. But after a season of watching that, they picked up a line from the character Yul Brunner. He slags off one of the other guys in his team and he says, whatever is wrong with you is no small thing. So our guys cross the dinner table. If somebody says something stupid or is really annoying... Whatever is wrong with you is no small thing. It's true, isn't it? We wish it were. We come up with all sorts of schemes to minimize it and to make it small, but it's not. What are we going to do about this landfill that's inside us? Something we can't wash off of our hands. We're like Lady Macbeth. Washing, washing the invisible bloodstains off her hand. Out, damn spot. But you can't wash things off your hands that are inside your heart. It's not our hands that need clean, it's our heart. It's not my hands that needs clean, it's my heart. What are we going to do? Actually, there's no answer in our passage this morning. I don't know if you know that. We've come to the end of our passage. So we're going to have to reach beyond it. We're going to have to recognize God's word isn't just a series of wee passages. It's a whole God's people always understood that only God could wash their hearts. King David, in one of his most famous psalms, when he had failed dramatically, he's a, an adulterer and a murderer at this point, confronted with his sin. What is it he says? He says to God, he cries out, "'Cleanse me with hyssop, and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow.'" Whiter than snow? You know, Goodness. That's a, that's a beautiful prospect, isn't it? That somebody could come along, wash away our filth, and make us like snow. How is it possible? How does a holy God even get close enough to us to do it? I've been reading about that this week. I'm sort of joining a few things together. I've been reading Leviticus. That's not the easiest book in the Bible to read. I'm reading it for book by book. But I've been reading about the various sacrifices that God gave to his people called them to make. There's the burnt offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering. And there's all sorts of detailed regulations about how to make those offerings and the circumstances in which you would make them. But then there's a refrain that explains what they can achieve. And it's beautiful. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them for your sins and you'll be forgiven. It says that over and over and over again. Atonement here, by the way, just means to cover your sin, to, to get rid of it. It's a, it these sacrifices they were a really gracious gift of God. He said to the people, listen, you sin, I know that. The punishment that should fall on your sins is a heavy one, so let me give you a gift. I'll accept the sacrifice of an animal. In your stead, that's how we'll deal with your sin. Folks, if you were visiting a church for the first time today and you heard me talking about sacrificing animals, you might be freaked out a bit. Please relax. I've never sacrificed an animal in my life. But I stand with a clean bill of health before the living God. How can I say that? It's because an atoning sacrifice has been made on my behalf. It was made 2,000 years ago. When Jesus of Nazareth, the, the person we're learning about in this King's Cross series, when he was nailed to a Roman cross, that was the atoning sacrifice for my sin and for yours. You see, Jesus had come to be the Lamb of God. He had come to be the sacrifice. That whole Old Testament sacrificial system was only ever pointing to him. It was all gearing up to this moment. The Father always intended that his Son would die for us. Folks, in the light of Jesus' death, we can rewrite that Leviticus verse that's on the screen there, talking not about burnt offerings or guilt offerings or sin offerings, but Jesus' death on the cross. We can just say, in this way, Jesus will make atonement for them and they'll be forgiven. Folks, I say it again. I stand here this morning with a clean bill of health. My filth has been dealt with, all of it. And I'm whiter than snow. By the way, I want to recognize just for a moment that for some people here this morning, this might not be landing with you. there, And I, I think there's a problem that I understand. You see, we live in a culture that doesn't anymore talk about sin and about guilt. In a reaction to some very censorious, very judgmental cultures in the past, the modern West has left all talk of sin and guilt behind. And we imagine that that's a good thing. A lot of it is good, but not all of it. You see, it leaves us with a problem. Last year I re-watched Peter Weir's 1993 film Fearless. Begins with an, air, uh, an airplane crash. Tells a story of Max Klein, who survives that crash. And as a result, he's overcome his, his fear of death, or, or seems to have. At one point in the movie, Dr. Perlman, the psychiatrist who's been assigned to the crash victims, he brings Max to see Carla, another victim of the crash. Carla's struggling with guilt. She's blaming herself about the death of her baby who died with her in the crash. And while they're in Carla's apartment, Perlman gives this assessment of what he sees in Carla. Very Catholic. Very old world. Full of guilt, he says. To which Max, a modern secular man, says, what are you talking about, man? I'm full of guilt and shame. How is that old world? Folks, the truth is, whether we live in a culture that's willing to talk about sin and shame, the truth is we're sinners. The truth is we carry our guilt and our shame. The thing that's different in our new world about our old world is that in our new world, we're denying people access to the answer. We're saying carry that for the rest of your life. There's no help for that. It's not a real thing. Folks, we're filthy. But we can be whiter than snow. Every one of us, here and now. How do we do this? Well, Jesus beloved disciple John, he tells us in the first chapter of his first letter, he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do you see it? The only person who misses out on the washing is the person who doesn't want it. If I say that I'm clean, or if I say, I'll I'll just get on with washing my hands here myself, then I don't get to be clean. I might get to impress other people. I might get to play to the crowd, but I don't get to be clean. But if I admit that I'm full of rubbish That what's wrong with me is no small thing And that I can't do a thing about it And that I'd love to be cleaned Then I get clean Whiter than snow Friends, I can't say it any clearer than that Let's stop washing our hands, will we? Let's come before God. Let him look into our filthy hearts and beg him to wash us clean. Do it today. Come to Jesus. Stop carrying this stuff around. Let's, let's get rid of it. Let's ask him to wash us clean. If you don't know how to do that, talk to somebody you know who knows and loves Jesus. I've said this before. If it's ever me, if you ever want to ask please come and ask and I'd be delighted to help you think about how your heart and mine can be whiter than snow. Let's pray.